The next speaker is uh, Barack uh, Gasters, Gaster, without an S. And uh, Barack has been a, 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 what, you're a attender to the Smoke Farm Symposium for several years. Uh, and and uh, but then it was at uh, Blaze and Adrian's house that, that we had a conversation and we talked about his research and what he was doing at UW as a, as a professor of medicine, and a family medicine practitioner, is that your main thing? Yeah, and, uh, and it obviously fits well with this unfolding Bardo theme, right? That we're sort of in these in-between stages. Uh, his research on um, Alzheimer's disease and his uh, uh, initiation of, of helping people create plans for uh, that uh, condition, right, uh, have given him a lot of um, attention. So without further ado, we're very happy to have Barack here as a speaker at this symposium. So uh, thank you so much, Stuart, and thank you to everybody who's making this weekend possible. Um, it is, uh, you know, it, it's, it's so lovely to be here, and the, uh, the food and the setting have just been so, the company have been so wonderful. Um, so thank you all for being here. Um, and, you know, so today I'm going to talk about, like, two of, you know, maybe the most intense hard things that we ever face. Um, you know, the first one being dementia. You know, so that's just the, the slow fading of our consciousness um, that can happen over 15 or 20 or 25 years, um, which is incredibly common. So about a third of people, um, if they live long enough, will develop dementia, of which Alzheimer's is the most common type. And it really is one of the hardest things for anybody to sort of think about or talk about, you know, which I think, you know, one of the main sort of messages is just how important it is uh, for us to start talking about um, this disease and to be less afraid of it and a little bit more embracing of the fact that uh, an awful lot of us have either faced it or will face it in the future. And then the other thing is death, you know, that, you know, the existential mortality of which we all face, and that what happens when we think about what happens at the end of our days if we were to get dementia, and how to think about that, how to plan for it, um, and just kind of what does it even mean? Um, and so it really is like, you know, what if you were to develop dementia, a little bit of thought into what does that mean for you and how might you think about uh, that future for yourself if it were to happen. You know, probably the most famous movie that's been made about dementia is Still Alice, which is, uh, you know, it, it sounds like it's this horrendously difficult movie to watch, but it's actually it's, 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 a, it's a beautiful, well-made movie that uh, Julianne Moore won Best Actress for, um, you know, really uh, portraying the sort of the, the progression of dementia in um, this, you know, very, very successful linguistics professor um, who at a young age develops dementia, 
based on a true story. And then it sort of traces her life uh, you know, as her dementia uh, gets worse and worse. And I want to really focus in on like the most, to me at least, the most harrowing scene in this movie, um, which is sort of towards the beginning of the movie, she decides that if that she really wants to set up a plan for herself to take her own life um, before her dementia gets really severe. And so she, she makes a video of herself to herself with instructions that if her dementia gets so bad that she can't answer some simple questions about her life, that she should go and find a bottle of pills which she has hidden, and she should go and take all the pills in the bottle and then go to bed. And so then, later in the movie, her dementia has gotten worse, and she stumbles upon this video that she made of herself to herself, and she can't answer the simple questions about her life, and so she follows the instructions that she left for herself in the video. She goes and she finds the bottle of pills, and she goes up to the bathroom, and just as she's about to swallow them all, there's a noise downstairs that interrupts her, and she's kind of startled, and all the pills fall to the floor, and she kind of you know, looks around, and she kind of forgets what, what it was that she was in the middle of doing, and sort of you know, the moment passes, and then the rest of the movie is just the chronicling of her continued worsening of her d dementia. And you know, it just, it's, this, it's an incredibly harrowing, sort of fraught moment in the movie, um, that really speaks to this whole issue of kind of what does it mean to think about uh, the end of your life uh, if you were to get dementia. So we're going to come back to that sort of specific issue. Um, but, you know, first, you know, like, you know, you might ask, what, what, what the hell am I doing up here talking to you about this, like, you know, gruesome, horrible uh, subject, uh, which I'm going to try to make less gruesome and horrible. But still, it's like, you know, why, why am I up here talking about this? This is where I work. So this is the General Internal Medicine Clinic at the UW Medical Center, um, which is a, a really cheerful, happy place. I'm really uh, happy with my job, and it's not all sort of doomy and gloomy. Um, you know, but I'm a primary care doctor for adults, and so I sort of see patients on my own. I do a lot of supervising of residents and students, um, sort of training them in internal, general internal medicine. Um, you know, I also do a fair amount of writing over the years, thinking about, like, what are the most difficult things that primary care doctors face? You know, that, so over the years, I've written about the things that um, we as a society, but especially we as primary care doctors, really find difficult. And it was about four years ago that a series of events at work really sort of dawned on me that dementia is really the most difficult issue that we are not facing. You know, that it is, it's looming and it's hard and it's difficult, and we as physicians, but sort of we as a society are just having so much trouble talking about it and thinking about it and facing it. And as a result, people are sort of stumbling into really severe late stages of dementia without anybody having called it what it is or talked about it, naming it. Um, people end up stumbling into really sort of bad crisis situations because there is so much fear and stigma attached to it. I mean, it's like there's, 
maybe no other disease that has this much fear and stigma attached to it. I mean, I think I was talking to someone else earlier about how cancer in a way used to be that way. I mean, people didn't used to be able to talk about cancer, um, but we've come a long way with cancer. And I really do hope that in the coming years, we make that same journey with dementia and are just able to talk about it more. So about four years ago, I started building a program at the University of Washington to develop training for primary care doctors to take, it out of the, take the disease out of the shadows and start doing a better job of identifying it earlier and training doctors and how do we talk to patients about it, how do we talk to families about it, and how do we help guide families through sort of the difficult stages of this disease in a more supportive way. And a big part of that is thinking about the, the end days of dementia and how to think about sort of what does dying with dementia mean and how does that happen and how can we plan for it uh, in a better way. Because um, this is a really, really big deal. I mean, so right now, 9 million people uh, in America have dementia. Um, if you look at everybody over age 65, it's about 10% of the population. Over age 85, it really is 30% of the population. So that's that number about if you do live long enough, about a third of us will develop dementia. So not all of us, so this is not normal aging. Plenty of people can live to 100 without dementia, but it is a common condition that happens as we get older. But really, like where we're at right now with this disease being a big deal is really just the very tip of the iceberg in that in the next 10 years, there are these really well-founded projections that the number of people living with dementia in the United States is going to double and possibly even triple in the next 20 years. And every time I say that statistic, it's always kind of like, and I, my, I almost kind of stumble getting it out because it's like, how can that be? Like that is like such a, there's like such a great, those are such crazy numbers. Like, you know, where is that coming from? And there's really two forces at play, which is that people are living longer. So we're doing a better job of treating people's heart attacks and their cancer. So fewer people are live, dying in their 60s and 70s from those diseases and are living into their 80s and 90s. But there's also this like really weird demographic quirk in our society, um, which is the baby boom. And so this is a graph showing the number of live births in the United States starting just after World War II and for the 20 years after, showing that there was just this real bump, this real jump in the number of people born in the United States in these 15 or 20 years, which is the baby boom. And if you put that together with this graph, which shows the age at which people typically develop Alzheimer's disease, you know, you see that it is right around age 70 where there's this inflection point. So before age 70, dementia can happen, but it's a very, very rare thing. So still Alice was a very rare occurrence of dementia in somebody who was in their early, I think late 50s, she was supposed to be early 60s, but that's not, you know, the most dementia, the vast majority of dementia, happens when people get to their 70s and 80s. So if you put that graph together with the baby boom graph, you end up with this graph, which shows where this cohort of people is right now. So right now, we are the, the most baby boomers are in their 50s and 60s, but the very sort of beginning tail of this population cohort is just now entering into that 
early 70s period where the risk of Alzheimer's disease really starts going way up. So this is where we are right now. And then if you follow that cohort 10 years from now, you see that bubble just moving into this dementia range. And then 15 years from now is when it's really going to hit in a major way. And you know everybody is sort of hoping that there will be a cure for Alzheimer's before then. But the, the data, the research so far has been really sort of struggling and disappointing in that way. This is, you know, in the same way that we realized in the early 70s that the war on cancer was a lot more complicated than we thought it was going to be, and that cancer is a much more complicated disease than we thought it was. And so it's taken 40 years for us to develop, start really start making huge progress in cancer. It's likely that the same, the, the, a similar story is, com, is playing out with dementia, where it's a much more complicated disease than we thought. The early sort of targets that we thought might work have not worked. And so it really is, it's likely that we will eventually get a cure for Alzheimer's disease, but it's also very, very likely that that is still 20 or 30 years away. And so we are going to be facing this you know, immense sort of spike in the number of people living with dementia um, in the United States. You know, which is why, you know, I really do feel like this is, you know, the number one disease challenge that we face, for sure, like for me as a primary care doctor, but I think for society as well, to just like think about what does this disease mean and how can we sort of plan for it. And, you know, part of what makes this disease so damn hard is that it is not like, you know, it, it, it's, it's so different than getting a diagnosis of lung cancer. I mean, if you, get, if you get a diagnosis of lung cancer, you have lung cancer, and even though there are many different flavors and stages of lung cancer, still, like, lung cancer is lung cancer. With, with dementia, it's, it's this incredibly, incredibly long, slow progression for which there are five or 10, maybe even 15 years where you can sort of demonstrably be shown to have cognitive impairment, which is very likely to progress, but which you are still you. You know, you are still interactive. Your memory is, your short-term memory is fading. Your ability to do really complex tasks is fading more than it would be in normal aging. Um, but you are still perfectly sort of interactive and enjoying life and sort of you know, loving and being loved in a very, very solid you are still you way. And so this idea that, oh, if I got diagnosed with dementia, you know, just like put me out, you know, put me out of my misery right then and there, is a really problematic, difficult issue because it's, it, for people who do do that, and there are people who do do that, there's a certain sort of tragicness about it where they are really missing out of potentially many years of meaningful, you know, enjoyable life. And, um, and you know, that, that's, that's hard. You know, that period, you know, can last a really long time. It can last up to 15 years. Often it lasts five or six years. Um, and then people will, develop worsening of their cognitive function to a point where they're really much more dependent. So they really need help sort of getting around. They need help you know, with really simple tasks like getting dressed, um, you know, going to the bathroom and bathing, 
can be you know, more of a challenge that you need help with. And it's really at this stage of the disease where you really also lose the ability to kind of be your own agent to sort of actually sort of you know, carry out plans that you had made. And you know, so this was the still Alice situation where she had reached this stage where she's trying to follow these directions that she had made for herself, but she wasn't able to follow through with it. And so it just like makes it even sort of more kind of problematic to think about, you know, how would you sort of go about a kind of end of life plan for yourself if you had reached this stage where you really are already not able to sort of carry out plans yourself. And then about 80% of people with dementia will eventually reach a stage um, which is, you know, a lot scarier, you know, which is the, the behavioral psychiatric symptoms that about 80% of people with dementia will eventually develop. You know, so some don't, you know, some people are really, really lucky and sort of sail through dementia without getting these symptoms. But for about 80%, there really is this phase where people become really agitated and they become really paranoid and they get really angry and they can be yelling and they can be sort of, you know, maybe even sort of violent in, you know, rare situations which is, you know, this is like the horrifying part of dementia. This is the part that re people really recoil from and sort of fear the most. Um, and it's absolutely true that there are ways that you can try to attenuate those symptoms. You know, that we, the medicines that we have are really crude and don't really work that well. You know, they can sedate people, but they are, they don't really work that well. And there are definitely, there's a whole sort of field of sort of non-pharmacologic attempts to address behavioral problems like this that do, that do work, but they are complicated and hard and in a population way are really hard to implement. And a lot of times, even when they are implemented perfectly, uh, they, don't, they don't work perfectly. And so um, this is still a really sort of hard, difficult stage of dementia that is very common, that is hard to treat. Luckily, it's, it, it, it fades, it passes, you know. So this is a, a period that lasts for three months or six months or 12 months or, you know, maybe even 18 months. You know, eventually it does sort of, sort of die down. And you know, then you get into sort of the late stages of dementia where this is the, the point at which, you know, when we think of dementia, this is kind of what we think of, which is sort of people really not recognizing sort of their loved ones, not really being able to interact with the world around them. You know, often being bedbound, losing the ability to go to the bathroom themselves, losing the ability to eat and drink themselves. And eventually, this phase of dementia also ends. I mean, eventually, people do die of dementia if their, if their cognitive function decreases enough that parts of the brain that control sort of breathing and, and heart beating will also give out. And so people do die of dementia. But this phase can also last a, a, very, a variable amount of time. So this can be like a one-year period or a two-year period or a seven-year period in sort of the most extreme situations, um, which is also just like really, can be really heart-wrenching. 
And you know, and so that's like this, this continuum of d d dementia makes this disease so hard in that it's not one thing, it's very, very slow and gradual. And you know, I, I kind of have you know, kind of solid, sharp lines between each one of these stages, but they're not sharp at all. They're fuzzy. You know, this is this is a this is a an, an analog progression where people are slowly moving from one stage to the other, and it can be a little bit tricky to know at what stage is a person at any time. And and it's a disease that waxes and wanes a lot, where it can sort of be sort of much worse for a period and then seemingly seem to get better and then get worse again. And so trying to figure out what your wishes are if you were to develop dementia really needs to be in this context of a complex disease that goes through very different stages in a very gradual and often very, very slow way in which we are slowly losing the, our capacity to understand what's going on around us and to make decisions for ourselves about our life and our medical care. You know, so what if you were to develop dementia? So what, what would you want? And so like, let's think about the options. And you know, the, the, the one that sort of tends to sort of you know, fly off the top of somebody's head, you know, especially if they're kind of in a young and, 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 and sort of immoral kind of uh, way, is to say, oh, gee, you know, I'll, I'm going to swallow a bunch of pills and just like put me out. You know, if I get dementia, good grief. I don't want to deal with any of that. Um, we're going to talk about that some, and that's the, that's the Phil Alice conundrum. Um, there's stopping of eating and drinking early in the course of dementia, which we'll, we'll talk about some more. There's signing a directive which states that in the later stages of dementia, if I'm not able to feed in, uh, myself, that I don't want any help with eating and drinking. And then there's making a dementia-specific living will, which really sp uh, specifically addresses life-prolonging care, which is, you know, it, of the four, is the least ethically and legally fraught um, of the four. And we'll talk about that in detail as well. So let, let's first sort of tackle this sort of bottle of pills issue, you know, because I mean, this is the one that, I mean, it's just sort of the easy way for your mind to snap where you kind of like, you hear about like, oh, gee, I would never want to live like that. You know, this is just like, you know, give me, give me the pills. And this is just really, really hard. I mean, it sounds so simple and easy, and yet, you know, it's, it's not. And that, you know, there's just the issues of like when and who and how, you know, so like, you know, the when we've talked about already some, which is that early in the disease, if you're really dead set on, you know, swallowing this bottle of pills, if you do it early in the disease where you have the most agency to consent to it, um, it can be really a tragic thing because this could be a very, very slow progressing disease in which you might really have a decade or more of good quality of life left that it's a little bit tragic to sort of, you know, sort of end prematurely. Um, and if you wait too long, then it gets to the who issue because then you really, you know, you can try to make a video for yourself of yourself, but the odds are that that's going to fail. And so you're almost inevitably going to need the help of somebody else to end your life. 
um, which becomes incredibly sort of ethically and legally fraught. I mean, you know, there you're talking about somebody who is vulnerable because they don't really completely understand sort of what's going on, and you're sort of actively ending their life. And so, you know, there are few jurisdictions that would hesitate to sort of prosecute that as murder. I mean, that's, that's like, that's way outside the bounds of what we as a society have deemed okay. You know, even if you were to fill out some sort of elaborate sort of proxy, sort of this is what I want, it's still fraught. And, you know, and ethicists grapple with this a huge, a huge amount as well. I mean, it's just, it's a lot to put on to somebody else to do that. And then it adds to the kind of how in that, you know, just getting a bottle of pills is a lot easier said than done. Um, you know, I think we've sort of dealt with the sort of the pharmaceutical sort of difficulties in sort of execution, you know, sort of finding the right mix of medicines that will end somebody's life is a lot, you know, easier said than it is done. And it, it, in a way we think of, you know, gee, there's this opioid sort of overdose epidemic, isn't it actually sort of relatively simple? But the reality is it's not, because if you don't get quite enough opioids, a, a lot of overdoses fail. You know, a lot of overdoses, you know, are, are only, you know, people survive them. And so to find the right medicine at the right dose at the right time and where are you going to get it from, you're also then also introducing all these other people who are going to be helping you get the, this, like, fatal uh, medicine, which is just like a lot harder than it sounds. Um, and, you know, and, you know, another sort of crazy interesting sort of aspect of sort of end of life um, is that, you know, there is this whole death with dignity sort of right to die movement that is, you know, becoming legal in many states. Very, very, very clearly every state that does include a law like that very, very clearly excludes dementia from that law. So they very specifically say that law does not apply to anybody diagnosed with dementia because they are not able to give consent um, to, you know, taking this lethal, this lethal dose. And so you really, so, you know, but the, the weird, crazy pharmaceutical industry uh, sort of tragedy is that, you know, the, the best medicine to use for this would be phenobarbital. Um, in terms of like having the most reliable sort of painless way uh, to end one's life. And you know, it really has almost no medical use these days because there are better medicines that we have for sedatives. It used to be used as a, a sedative, but it's not really used as a sedative anymore. So this is now a very rarely, rarely used medicine that really one of the only ways that it's used these days is people who are sort of seeking sort of right to die. And so the cost of a bottle of phenobarbital now is thousands of dollars, you know, because the pharmaceutical industry realizes that they can, they can charge that, and it's a very rarely used medicine, and that's just how they do business. Um, so hard. So what about, like, another option, which is stopping of eating and drinking early in the course of dementia. And so this is, a, this is a thing. And so this is going without water or food. And it's, it's called voluntary stopping of eating and drinking. 
the, the funny thing about it rea in reality is that it has very little to do with the food, actually. It's all about the drinking, you know, so that you can actually live for months without eating, um, whereas you really can only live for maybe a couple of weeks without water. And so, you know, we call it eating and drinking, but it's really about drinking. And so it's stopping drinking as a way of sort of voluntarily ending your life. And this is absolutely a thing for people who don't have dementia. So, I mean, you know, big write-up in the New York Times talking about VSED, voluntary stopping of eating and drinking, especially for the, like, the very elderly person who is tired of living, who doesn't necessarily have a, a terminal diagnosis that would qualify them for a, a right to die, sort of assisted death uh, situation, who really just doesn't want to live anymore. And for which, you know, for many, that could be a, a rational decision for them to make. And so that's VSED, which is for people without dementia. But then there is this concept of like, well, couldn't you do VSED if you had mild dementia? And there is a woman who lives actually very near here in Bellingham named Phyllis Schachter, um, who, you know, sh she helped her husband with mild dementia stop eating and drinking, and he died. And she has, like, you know, really now gone on a crusade to try to sort of spread the word about you know, that this is a, an option that more people should be aware of and should sort of think about. And so she, she writ, she's written a book about it. She's got a, blog, a really long blog post that just describes the whole process of helping her husband to die, specifically with the end of drinking issue. And, there, you know, there's just like really, really tricky parts of that narrative where the husband is forgetting what's going on, and he's really, really thirsty, and he's asking her for water. And she's like, no, no, honey, remember? You, you know, this is a, a, the plan we made. And he's like, oh, okay, yeah. You know, so she's, she's describing this in this very sort of honest and transparent way, but you're, you, you can't help but just like cringe a little bit as you read it of that, Whereas VSED might be a totally real and reasonable thing in somebody without dementia, but as a, as a, as a thing that you might apply to the context of dementia, it, it's hard, it's hard. So what about this signing of a directive which states that if you, your dementia reaches a, such an advanced stage that you're unable to eat or drink yourself, that you don't want assistance with eating and drinking. And um, you know, this is definitely less legally, ethically fraught than the first two options. Um, you know, it's, it's going to only really kick in at the very, very, you know, that fourth end stage of dementia that, we, that I talked about before. And it's like legal-ish, which I say in that there are two, two documents that have just come out really just in the last six months, which are in a way kind of break, groundbreaking in this area in that they have been very, very, very carefully crafted by um, you know, right-to-die advocates with lots and lots of legal help to try to come up with a document that is 
you know, legally tight that says, if I am unable to eat and drink myself, I don't want anybody to help me with that or assist me with that. And so the two documents are, uh, one was, is by End of Life Choices in New York, and the other is End of Life Washington, uh, a group here in Seattle, um, which sort of sets this out. And I say legal-ish in that there, this really kind of sticks in the craw of right to life people. So people, you know, the, the whole issue of sort of withholding food and water from somebody is like a really, you know, there are some people who get really, really upset with that concept. Um, and, you know, that, and it, it sort of feeds into the whole difficult issue of how, you know, isn't feeding somebody loving them? And, you know, if you withhold food from somebody, or aren't you kind of withholding sort of caring from them? And so it's, it's legal-ish in that lawyers have worked really hard to try to craft documents that they hope will stand up to court challenge. But these are brand new documents in the last six months signed by people who currently, you know, if they have dementia, it's very, very mild, such that it's going to be 10, maybe 15 years before there's even a possibility that one of these documents is actually going to have a, a, a court challenge, you know, because as of now, it's like just a piece of paper that somebody assigned and there's no sort of legal, there's no legal grounds to sue anybody, um, but there will be, and it'll be really interesting to see how it all plays out, and, you know, the odds are good that in some states that it probably will pass muster, but it's also quite possible that in some states it won't, and it's also very possible that someday it's going to hit the Supreme Court, but that is really a long ways away. And so for now, this is a, a, a good option. It's a great option. I, you know, I definitely recommend it to people who sort of come to me with concerns about you know, not wanting assisted eating or drinking. Um, but it's, it's legal-ish. And so what about this fourth option, which would be setting up a, a, a dementia-specific living will, which is really about what you would want for your medical interventions if you were to develop dementia. So much easier and simple uh, than the first three. And, you know, it's like, so what, what does that mean? And on one hand, you might say, you know, like, don't we already have living wills? Like, you know, there's a, this is a big sort of giant thing across the country if everybody should have a living will. The, the crazy thing is if, you know, every state has their own state-sanctioned, legislated sort of version of a living will, if you read each state's living will, none of them really apply to the scenario of dementia. So they are very, very focused on language which pertains to persistent vegetative state, permanent coma, or imminently terminal condition. Like those are the three kind of catch situations that, uh, that are in almost every state's official living will. And, you know, it, in a way, those are important conditions to address. You know, I mean, those are things that do happen. And when they do, they can be very, very legally and ethically fraught. And so having a signed document like this saying that if I was in a persistent vegetative state, that I would not want any life-prolonging treatment is good, but that's like, that, that's like a one in 10,000 occurrence. 
as opposed to the one in three occurrence of dementia, which you are really left completely sort of uninformed uh, looking at somebody's advanced directive. You know, which is like especially crazy because, you know, you are all right now thinking in a very kind of like concrete way, what would my wishes be? Gee, I have very clear wishes about what I would want, and yet there really is not, uh, there hasn't been a really easy and structured way uh, to communicate them. And it's like a really big burden for families. I mean, I'm sure that there are many people in this room who have faced a loved one with sort of the very end stages of dementia in which trying to decide at what point should the goals of medical care be shifted away from life prolonging care to uh, comfort oriented care only is a really, really, really wrenching decision to try to make in that you're trying to guess what the person would have wanted, but you're also grappling with your own sort of love for this person, like the, the, the difficulty that people have saying goodbye and letting go to their loved one is a really, really hard thing to do. And so that's the value of a simple structured living will for dementia that I've been working on for the past two years now. And I will tell you that as I started working on it, it was pretty surprising that nobody had done this before. You know, like I really looked hard for other examples that I could try to sort of learn from. And it's a pretty, it was a pretty amazing sort of uh, realization that there didn't really exist, that it really didn't exist. And so part of the reason that it's hard is that that whole issue of what a complex disease this is that goes through, you know, different stages. And it would make sense that your wishes for the goals of your medical interventions would shift from stage to stage. And so developing a structured way to allow people to express those wishes um, is not super obvious. Um, but so I've tried my best to, to accomplish that, which is to describe an early stage of dementia, a moderate stage of dementia, and a late stage of dementia. And then under each of those descriptions, give people the same four options to choose one of the four options for each of the three stages, which range from full care, you know, give me full medical care to prolong my life. Um, I would want to be, uh, do not resuscitate, do not intubate. I wouldn't want to be brought to the hospital or I would want comfort oriented care only. And the real idea is to try to, in a way, delegalize this document, to really sidestep that whole sort of fraught issue of, you know, could it withstand a court challenge and what is it really saying? By making it a communication tool between you and your healthcare proxy, by you and your durable power of attorney, so you and your family, it really sidesteps that whole is it legal question as a structured communication tool to help your loved ones sort of understand what you would want and to help inform the decisions that they might make um, in, in, on your behalf. And so develop this uh, d d directive, um, uh, it published it in JAMA in November. It got picked up in the New York Times in January, uh, was on NPR, set up this website where anybody can download it for free. 
And so in the last nine months, it's been downloaded over 100,000 times all across the country, um, and still sort of going at about a rate of about 500 per week of people sort of downloading this directive. And I, I hope filling it out, and I hope uh, sharing it with their families, and I hope sharing it with their doctors um, in a way that has the potential, I hope, uh, to at least solve some of this issue of how do I think about sort of what the end of my days with dementia might be. Um, you know, and again, it's like, it, it's a very structured three stages of dementia and then the, the four options to choose from with, you know, a really, really focused attempt to build these four options, not just as a sort of checkbox, yes or no, but as a way of thinking about why might you choose those four, one of those four options. And here's where, I mean, I really tried hard to get a lot of input from people in the fields of palliative care and in the fields of neurology and geriatrics to really think about, it's not just sort of a, uh, an offhanded, you know, yes, no, yes, no, but you know, it's, it's somewhat obvious that you would, if somebody chooses full care to stay alive longer, that's more or less clear-cut, or comfort-oriented care only, more or less clear-cut. But because this is such a gradual progression of a disease that has such a gradual change in one's quality of life, it makes sense to try to build in two intermediate goals that somebody might have. And so the, the second one, the no CPR, do not intubate, is really sort of specifically described in a way that you might choose that because at that stage of your dementia, your quality of life might be pretty okay for you, but you might be concerned that if you had a cardiac arrest or a respiratory arrest and you were resuscitated from that, that you would be too worried that the cognitive loss that you would experience from that experience would be so severe that you'd be brought back at a stage that you wouldn't want to be living. And so that might be the rationale why you might choose that uh, option for one of the stages of dementia. Similarly, for the no ER or hospital, that you might choose if you said, if I got pneumonia and I could be treated with antibiotics in the place where I was living, I might want that. You know, that, that quality of life that I was living right then is still maybe adequate and I might still want to be sort of, you know, if you could sort of easily sort of cure my pneumonia with some antibiotic pills in the place where I was living, I would still want that. But if despite those antibiotics, I continue to worsen, I would not want to be taken to an emergency room or the hospital because going to an emergency room or a hospital for somebody with dementia is a really traumatic experience. You know, the, the degree of agitation and sort of delirium and sort of medical misadventures that happen when people with dementia go to ERs and hospitals is really pretty significant. And so that's why you might say at that stage, I might want antibiotics to keep me alive longer, but I would not want to go to the hospital or the ER. And so, as you can imagine, so, you know, my, my email address is on the website, and so as these thousands of people have been downloading this directive, 
I've been getting a lot of emails from people, um, you know, saying like really sort of powerful things, you know, like, you know, my mom had Alzheimer's and suffered for eight years without being able to speak or understand, and having had this document would have helped us so much. I had to fly blind with my mom's dementia. I don't want the same thing to happen to my kids. So I gave a copy of it to all my friends. Everyone should have it. I've worked for many years with people with dementia. This document distills the most important issues about it. It's simple and easy to use. And you know, so it's, there's been you know a, a real kind of grassroots sort of response to this, which I, I didn't necessarily expect. It was a, a little bit odd, especially since the the program that I'm building is so focused on other primary care doctors that I was imagining at first this being something I was developing for primary care doctors to give to their patients. And yet, and, and they're interested in sort of, you know, are, there are some doctors who are giving it out to their patients, but really as a kind of like grassroots sort of phenomenon um, is really where it has uh, had the most uh, momentum. And so I'll tell you another sort of interesting story of as I was developing this directive, um, you know, I was like, I was giving various versions of it to my patients. And my first idea was that the most useful and important time to give it to somebody would be right at that moment of the early diagnosis. So as I'm making, you know, a diagnosis at the earliest possible stage that I could, that's when I would say this is a really important document for you to fill out because this is you know, what we are worried might be hap happening to you and what you might be facing in the you know, near-ish future. So it's, this is really important for you to fill out to express your wishes. And over and over again, people would nod and say thank you and they, I'll take this home and I will read it. And I got almost none of them back. People just like didn't fill it out. And they would come back for their follow-up visit and I would ask them about it again and they'd be, oh yeah, right, I, I, I'm meaning to do it, I'm gonna do it, don't, I will do it. And it still like just wouldn't happen. And, and so I've just thought a lot about that and I've tried to talk to some of my patients about you know, what's going on. And it's obviously complex and obviously different people have different reasons for not filling it out. Um, but I mean, I think the two, the two most likely uh, reasons are that number one, people are just, it's just so scary. You know, it's, it's, it's easier to fill it out when it's a more abstract thing for yourself. Whereas if it's really like, oh my God, this is what I am absolutely facing. It's much harder, just like there's that kind of sort of paralyzed deer in the headlights kind of feeling. But I, and so that's what I thought at first was going on, but then like even after people had sort of gotten past that initial kind of like shock of the diagnosis, it was still really hard for them to do. And it, I, then that's when I started realizing that there's more to it than that. And I think that as much as somebody in that early stage of dementia still is able to direct their own care right then and there, as much as they still have competency to sort of maneuver through their life to a great extent. There are some really complex tasks that they still, that they can't really wrap their heads around. And I think that filling out an advanced directive is actually one of those very cognitively complex tasks that you lose the ability to do so early in the course of dementia that it may be in that sort of almost pre-diagnostic ability 
sort of phase to do. And you know, so when I was on the NPR, um, it was a call-in show, and pe so people were calling in and sort of asking their questions and telling their stories. And one of the people who called in was a guy who had mild cognitive impairment, and he was describing having a five wishes document, which is like one of the most common advanced directives out there. And he was describing how it's like it's been sitting on his counter for over a year, and he just like can't bring himself to fill it out. And he, you know, his voice started like he became so emotional that he almost just had, it had to end the call, and it was just so dramatic and, and moving. And, and it, it just made me realize that as much as you may be able to say, this is what I want for my medical care right now, the mental leap of imagining a future state of yourself, okay, and so now you've got this future state of yourself, right? And now imagine these different abstract scenarios that that future state of yourself might face. What does that future state of yourself want? It's really like, it, it's just too much for somebody to really sort of wrap their heads around. So that's when, instead of offering it to people who had that very earliest stage of dementia, I started just offering it to all of my patients once they reached a certain age, you know, and whether that age is 55 or 60 or 65 or 70, you know, offering it to everybody as part of their kind of annual visit with me. And instead of getting 0% of them back, I got 90% of them back. Like, so all of a sudden it was something that obviously taps into something that people are really worried about. You know, this is just simmering under the surface for so many people where they're so like afraid and worried but not really wanting to talk about it. And being given a structured, sort of relatively simple form to fill out to express those wishes um, is really pretty dramatic. And so there's just a lot of benefits, you know, can give you peace of mind knowing that your wishes are known, peace of mind for families, so knowing that decisions that they're making for their loved ones are guided by what their loved one would have wanted. And, you know, compared to those other three really fraught ethically and legal issue options, this really is like pretty straightforward and compassionate and easy and, and, and low fuss and free. Um, you, know, we, you know, really with the goal of aligning the care that people get with the care that they would have wanted. Um, that, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a simple and, and, and clear-cut message um, that I, you know, hope is resonating with a lot of people. And so thank you all very much, and uh, I'm happy to talk more about this. Any questions? Howdy. Um, thank you. This is great. I, I missed, I had never heard of that. But uh, having seen three people through their end of life, um, one of the things that I think is so critical, and I wonder how much you're taking this into the conversation, is the caregivers, when the, when the, when the patient is no longer I mean, the stress on the caregiver of making those decisions about, as you brought up, no, no water, no food, or, or battling the hospital to actually make those, those decisions take place. Yeah. 
and then that was one thing I wanted you to talk about. The other is um, the issue with the more and more Catholic hospitals and the ethical directives from the church that yeah. um, doctors are having to deal with. Um, and then that the conversation about staying out of the hospital because you really then you you're you're into their system and how how difficult it is to stay out of the hospital. Yeah. So I guarantee if I start answering the first question, I will not remember the second and the third one. Uh, but I will do my best. Um, I'm, I'm holding it all in my head. I almost, I um, but so right. So the first question is just like the stress of the caregiver. Like you know, I. Well, and how the and how the medical profession can help the caregiver. Yeah. To give them some preview of what's what they're going to be facing and and that. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. Think that's a big. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, a big part of my program is to try to develop sort of resources for primary care doctors. Because I mean, obviously primary care doctors can't do it all. And you know, they, they play a really big role in sort of you know, being the first person that somebody will contact if they have memory concerns, but also the person who hopefully is like you know, the trusted and sort of known entity, you know, rather than going off and see somebody you don't know, so having sort of somebody help to guide your care who you sort of know and trust has to be, but, but there have to be sort of resources and help that are, you know, very often going to be social workers. I mean, to, I, a really f uh, funny thing that uh, another primary care doctor uh, said to me, it's like, you know, right, it's like if you look at almost every problem in medicine, it's like social workers are the answer, <laughs> you know, that, you know, that it's, it's really like a social worker who can go out to the home and can help to sort of navigate what are the non-pharmacological ways to help with behavior problems and what are the caregiver stress relieving things that you can do for caregivers, especially around questions about goals of care and end of life questions. Um, it's, it's huge and it's hard and um, I mean, there's no, it, you, you, you hit on a very important point. Um, your second point was Ethical Catholic hospitals. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's uh, you know, the, it's the you know one of the largest systems of hospitals in the state of Washington is Providence, which is a Catholic sort of uh, a Catholic system, and trying to figure out how do they sort of deal with end of life stuff is tricky. I will say that of all of the controversial things that a, a Catholic-based hospital sort of runs aground on, end of life is actually lower on the list. You know that you know when it comes to like abortion or when it comes to birth control or when it comes to you know you know IUDs, like they they there's all kinds of other much more complicated and fraught issues that they prioritize. Whereas, I mean, one of the best hospice agencies in the, the area is Providence Home Hospice, and they do an amazingly sort of, you know, good, compassionate job of helping guide people through end-of-life goals of care conversations. And so, but, and, you know, and, and in terms of, yeah. So have you found that, that they're giving you any pushback? I mean, you're not getting no. any? No, no. So they I, are I, I'm, I'm, yeah. I mean, right. you know, every hospital is different, and right. every person in every hospital is different. And so there's definitely, it's hard to make kind of blanket statements where there could definitely be situations in which, you know, people could have trouble getting their wishes met. Um, 
it's less of a problem than I think it used to be, and I'm sort of hopeful that things are moving in the right direction of things, people's wishes being honored more. And, you know, and it tends to be more of a kind of crazy sort of legalistic sort of, you know, I don't want to be, or hiding behind and I don't want to be sued than a hiding behind my Catholic religion issue. Um, but it, it's changing, and I mean, it, you know, and I can speak somewhat nationally in that every country, or I can speak somewhat internationally in that every country is like grappling with this in really different ways. And, you know, there are some countries like the Netherlands, which are much, much, much more liberal about this than the U.S., but there are also countries that are much, much more conservative about this than the U.S. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult, tricky thing. And your last question was about... Um, um, well, and when I was talking about caregivers, I was kind of, I wasn't necessarily talking just about the medical caregivers, but the family caregivers. Yeah. Um, and related to that, the, the um, support for, for the family caregivers about how to stay out of the hospital, right. if that's your goal. Yeah, right. And so, I mean, yeah. that, 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 that kind of do not hospitalize directive is tricky for some. And, you know, so there, the, the, the main sort of institutional pushback people might run into is a like a senior care facility you know so like a, de a dementia unit where somebody is living and they especially can sort of hide behind this real kind of risk management legal thing of like you know somebody just fell and they could have you know a broken hip and if I don't send them to the hospital and maybe it was our fault that they fell you know, we're somehow going to be sued for, you know, not yeah. doing them right. And then somebody can say, yeah, but I filled out this, or, or a family member can say, no, but we don't want them hospitalized. And you can imagine there could be sort of tension in that way. But, I mean, I, I, we are moving in a good direction in that way where de dementia care in general is, is evolving. And it's evolving, I hope, into a more compassionate and balanced sort of thoughtful process. Yeah. Hi, I've had the experience of um, a primary care physician facing someone who clearly had dementia, never uttering that word and never suggesting any kind of diagnosis. And I've always been... Yeah curious about why that's the case, if there are pros and cons to official diagnosis, and yeah. what, why that occurred. Yeah, I mean, and that is the central sort of uh, primary goal of my program. You know, so it's, it's really sort of addressing the primary care doctor's reluctance, resistance, inability to sort of say the word dementia, and why why is that? And it's it's a, and so I've thought about it a lot, and there's a lot of reasons why that happens, and it's absolutely tragic that it happens, and sometimes even when it does happen, it still doesn't go well because there's this whole kind of diagnose and adios phenomenon where it's like, well, you got dementia, you know, get your affairs in order, you know, I'll see you next year, you know, and people walk away with that diagnosis, but kind of like in this kind of shell shocked, you know, worse off having it than better off having it. And, and so, you know, so the, the barriers are many. Um, you know, one of them is time. You know, it's, it's, it's a very time-consuming, 
diagnosis to make. It's a very time-consuming diagnosis to counsel people about. And so in some ways, doctors can hide behind, like, I just don't have time to do that. Um, there is a nihilism aspect to it where there's no disease-modifying treatment for dementia. You know, so even though we've spent billions of dollars on looking for a cure for Alzheimer's disease, we're not really near to, close to it. And so it's somewhat easy for primary care doctors to say, you know, well, there's nothing I can do about it anyway. Like, why should I have this psychologically fraught conversation? And it's, but, it, 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 but I think really those are both red herrings. I think the, the ultimate issue is just that it's just hard. You know, it's just psychological. I mean, patients are, you know, happy to not talk about it. And families are kind of out of the loop. And so, and, and so for a physician to have to oftentimes kind of like really draw everybody out and gather everybody together and let's have this really fraught, psychologically hard conversation is, you know, just, you know, kind of yucky, <laughs> you know? And so, um, you know, it, it's, so it's, it's, so it's a process. And so, I mean, the, the training program that I'm developing has communication skills built into it that's like, here's how to make the diagnosis, and here's how to talk about it, and here's why it's so important to do, and yes, it's time consuming, yes, it's psychologically fraught, but you know, we owe it to people, and we should be doing it. And you know, the workshops that I've started to give have you know, at least the people who come to them, which is obviously a self-selected group, are really receptive and sort of wanting to change the way they, they practice. I uh, just wanna first thank you for delving into a hard topic and guiding us gracefully through all how few options there are uh, if you arrive in that place and the work that you've done to provide kind of a practical uh, formula or stepping, stepping stone for, for how people can have that conversation. Um, I can't help as watching you present wondering, do you know Michael Hebb? Sure. Yeah, so um, just to say something about him, I, I would have fact-checked all this if my phone was working right now, but he's, um, I think, a communications professor at UW. Is that right? Um, he has, he's been involved in some communications teaching. I mean, okay. I, that's not his main gig, okay. but yeah. Well, I, I know very little about him other than his let's have dinner and talk about death yeah. TED Talk and forum, um, which is just so compelling, and I feel like it's the, it's, it's the other side of the coin for this, where I feel like... I appreciate so much that what you're talking about is social workers and doctors and kind of educating and empowering people on that side to have those hard conversations. And the other side of that I'm, I'm thinking is, what if the family or the individual or the general public was, if that was a destigmatized conversation yeah, that they could bring to sure. you? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that seems like where his work is also definitely just bringing that to the table. So. I, I thought there's no way you're up here giving this talk and, yeah. and being both in the UW world and not yeah. knowing one another, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel like if, yeah, you've got no. to already be collaborating. Right. He's doing, he's doing an amazing good work. You know, death with dinner is, yeah. death over dinner is like an amazing project, you know, really, really sort of successful. And, um, you know, he's got a new book out, which is like really, really good. And, um, and so for sure him and I have sort of, you know, thought about how to work together and, you know, he really does want to bring dementia to the conversations that he's trying to bring about, about death. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really light and nice. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
Hi, uh, thank you again for uh, doing this talk. Um, my interest in this topic uh, is kind of on uh, how the environmental circumstance may affect the uh, patient who has dementia. Um, and so to give some kind of context for my question, um, my only experience with uh, this topic has been with my grandmother who lives somewhere in Ohio. Um, in a span of about three years, she went from a uh, state of losing where her car was in the parking lot of the movie theater to not recognizing me on the phone, like on a you know video chat. Um, and so what I'm interested in is you, you talked about some patients who had longer term suffering with this uh, illness. Um, but I wonder if in your research you've come across any sort of data or statistics to uh, support or show patterns in whether uh, longevity of state of mind and ultimately survival is impacted by whether they are in a hospital or assisted living care versus uh, care with families and being in a uh, environment that might be more personal and yeah. a little more connected if, yeah. if there's any association with yeah. that. Yeah, this is a huge area of work. There's you know enormous amounts of really good research that's been done that really has developed a whole way of caring for somebody with dementia which is much more likely to reduce sort of bad agitated behavior, you know, which is that, you know, it's that, and, it, and it's hard to say that it's, it's not necessarily comparing home to a nursing facility to an assisted living facility, because even within those categories, there's like this giant range of the kinds of care that people can get. And so rather than, focusing on where is somebody better off. It's focusing on what's happening in that place. In that, and, you know, and this is where we, there's like tremendous work still to be done because we really have developed approaches to treating, to, to sort of, you know, non-pharmacologic behavioral approaches to how do you sort of try to deal with somebody who is really, really agitated and angry and sort of, you know, paranoid. And, you know, the, there is like the easy way of just, you know, giving, give them a sedating medicine, you know, here, take this pill. Um, but there are more effective, but more complicated to sort of execute uh, approaches where you, you know, cover all the mirrors because mirrors can be a total trigger for people. Um, you sort of are really careful about rugs on the floor, which can start, suddenly become like a pit that somebody can sort of like is afraid to walk across because they might fall into it. Um, you know, ways of like where do you put the door handle so that somebody isn't like continuously trying to kind of like get out the door. I mean, there, there, you know, there's, there's like giant manuals that are sort of written that really are effective but they're complicated. And to try to train families in the home to use all those techniques, to try to train staff in a nursing facility to use all those techniques is both time consuming and complicated and not easy and kind of expensive. And, and you know, this, but that, that's exactly the direction that we need to be moving in. You know, and we, we just need better resources to help 
do that. Like a primary care doctor can't do that. You know, like what I can do is I can hand you a 350-page book called The 36-Hour Day, which is packed full of like amazingly good, useful pearls. But unless I'm like there in the home with you and helping you walk through it, very few families are going to be able to just like read that 360-page book and just like do it. You know, so you really, so that's that's the the social worker sort of piece. And it doesn't have to be a social worker. It could be a physical therapist, could be an occupational therapist, could be a speech therapist, it could be a RN, but it has to be somebody other than an MD who is specially trained in teaching and learning those techniques who can sort of go out and train staff and train families. That is really kind of, that's the, that's the golden sort of uh, vision that is, uh, that it, it, it will, I mean, one, you know, I, all of, I, I've had a couple of conversations today about this disease, about how, um, you know, it really is like the, the, the fact that the baby boomers are right on the cusp of this disease really is a, uh, it, it gives me a lot of optimism that, you know, the, the baby boomers are not going to sort of drift into this disease in the same way that they're, the previous generation did of like, oh, let's pretend it's not happening and let's like, you know, let's stumble through and we'll be okay. But instead it's gonna be like, you know, this is happening, like we can need to talk about it, we need to make it better. You know, I, I do think that this is a really, that the, the next 10 years has the potential to sort of have traction to start changing the way that we sort of treat and talk about dementia. Thank you. Yeah. So you talked a lot about how there's not really this assisted suicide option for dementia patients, yeah. and that's kind of a fantasy. Um, I was wondering if you thought there should be, and if you think there will be. <laughs> Is the tape recorder on? It's like... <laughs> um, uh, so another really important story that has been in the press that I had slides about that I took out to make it the talk shorter, but that now you're gonna give me the opening talk about, I will. Um, so about in, it was about three years ago, the New York Times Magazine had a big giant feature story uh, about uh, a woman who um, I think lived in Vermont, um, who is, who it sort of followed the entire narrative of her story of you know, having her family help her swallow a, a bunch of pills when her dementia reached a certain point that they all kind of decided together was sort of the right time for her to say goodbye. And um, you know, it, it's a very, very, very well-written uh, piece. I would highly recommend, if you, if you just sort of search for New York Times Magazine, sort of dementia, end of life, and her name is like escaping me at the moment. Um, but it'll be, it'll be easy to find. And so that's, that is, in a way, like the best case rosy scenario of that kind of assisted death, sort of, you know, moderate dementia situation that, you know, at that point, you know, the, 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 the article does a really, really good job of describing how at that point her life had lost, like really all of the sort of the almost all of the meaning that she had to it and she had given very very clear sort of directions ahead of time that sort of she wouldn't want to sort of be alive longer if her dementia had reached that point um, you know and, and it's really interesting that you know that that they and it describes a little bit 
all of the hoops that they went through to try to protect her family and her doctors and her lawyers from any liability. You know, because I mean, it's really, like I said, like that's, it, 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 there's a very fine line between that and murder. And, you know, in that it's somebody who really is like not fully, I mean, and it describes in this narrative how she does, she's kind of, kind of aware that this is what's happening and this is what she would want, but it was still, she wasn't able to say, you know, this is, I understand what is happening and this is sort of what I want to have happen. And so, um, so I don't know, you know, yes, I mean, I think to some degree, there, is, there should be some room for that, but I think that, you know, and that is what's happening in the Netherlands. You know, the, the Netherlands has, you know, a much more uh, long-standing than the U.S. approach to assisted death, and that does include dementia. And, um, and they, they have, like, published experience there where they say that it's relatively rare and that when it does happen, it is sort of ethically defensible. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying really hard to not be sort of, you know, the guy who talks about death <laughs> um, as much as I am about the guy who talks about improving the care that patients with dementia get and trying to align that better with what they would have wanted. And so I focus a lot about assisted death because this is a smoke farm and I can talk about anything I want at smoke farm. And it's not, the, the, the tape recorder's off now, right? But I mean, it's like, I mean, so yes, I mean, I think that there are some people who have really, really clear ideas about that they would want assisted death if they had dementia. And it is, it is possible and it's, you know, there, I talked about some of the barriers and some of those barriers are surmountable and some of them are harder to surmount. Um, but, you know, and so I, if anybody came to me asking me about it, I would have a lot of empathy for them and I would sort of, you know, there are, there are groups, you know, the, the, the Hemlock Society is not called the Hemlock Society anymore, but they're sort of operating in similar ways that, you know, it's like, I think they're called Compassionate Choices now, where, um, you know, you can like go and seek help, um, you know, where it's all kind of happening under the radar and, you know, as, as the, the, the less that people know about it and talk about it in some ways is the better because it is so legally and ethically fraught. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm definitely open-minded. Let me say that, yeah. All right, thank you all so much. Thank you, Barack.